Well, it's so great to be with all of you. Welcome to Highland Park Presbyterian Church, and um, happy Mother's Day. We're honored to be able to spend this time uh, with you here at Highland Park Pres. Uh, we're in a series where we've been looking at some of these things that we often say and think are in the Bible, but they aren't actually in the Bible. Now, part of this, just to step back, is that the trend of Bible literacy, our knowledge of what is actually in the Bible, isn't exactly moving in the right direction. Uh, Gallup did a poll on this a while back where a um, high percentage of respondents thought that the epistles were the wives of the apostles. Uh, a number of folks surveyed thought that uh, Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, is called that because it was delivered on horseback. Uh, some people surveyed thought Noah was married to Joan of Arc, All right, which just to be clear, that is not in the scriptures. Now, today we're looking at uh, one that you've likely heard before. I'm assuming you've heard this before. Often it's when somebody we really care about, somebody we love, a family member or a friend, they're going through a really hard time, they're at the end of their rope, they're just facing a ton of struggles and suffering, and we want to offer words of encouragement and comfort, and, and so we might say something like this, hey, God won't give you more than you can handle. Ever heard that before? Sometimes uh, it's the big, you know, the big uh, cataclysmic events in life. Sometimes it's just the everyday beatdown of work and life and even parenting. I remember when our twins were, were born and, you know, we brought them home from the hospital and I, I, I drove seven miles an hour the whole way. And, and then there were this, those first few days and those first few weeks where you're feeding them every three hours and the sleep deprivation is just next level, and we're going through 40 diapers a day. Well, I was just thinking this week, like looking back, imagining if I would have said to Allie, babe, you got this. <laughs> like I've been praying for you, and, um, and I want to speak this promise over you. God won't give you more than you can handle, and just <laughs> call me if you need me, because I'm going to be at work all day, Right? To which she probably would have said, you can sleep in the guest room with your God who gives you all more than you can, never gives you more than you can handle because my God has definitely given me more. But the Bible never says this. In fact, so many of the stories that make up our, our holy scriptures are about people who are facing far more than they can handle. Slavery, oppression, persecution, suffering, even death, if you think about it by definition, is something that we cannot handle. Another problem with this saying, God won't give you more than you can handle, is it can almost sound like God is, is, is dishing out suffering and struggles here and there. It's like he's up there in, the, up there in heaven and he's saying, you know, I'm going to have that person fired. I'm going to give that guy cancer. I'm going to have them deal with infertility. And just to be as clear as possible, that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who came to us in Jesus to suffer for us and with us. And that's what we're going to reflect on together today. And to do that, we're going to open up a story in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. It's about two women who are facing more than anyone should have to handle in a lifetime. And it begins like this. This is Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah, that's kind of an important detail there, a man from Bethlehem, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. So the story of Ruth, the story begins with a famine. 
Just imagine the economy tanks, you lose your job, you drain your savings, then you sell your cars, then you lose your house, you got one pair of clothes, and every morning you're waking up wondering where the next meal's gonna come from. Things get so bad that you're willing to move across the border into a foreign, hostile land because you're just hoping for a new start. And that's where we find this family. Nothing to their name, but hey, at least they've got family. At least they've got each other. But then the father in this family gets sick. They pray for healing. They beg God to spare his life, and then one day he's gone. The widow, Naomi, finds herself in a foreign land trying to raise two boys on her own. Well, the boys grow up, and eventually uh, they get married. And just as it looks as if life for Naomi and her, and her family uh, is starting to sort of settle down and, 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 and find some equilibrium, uh, her two sons then get sick. And just like that, she's reliving all the suffering that she had tried so hard to forget. Naomi faces the worst pain any parent, any mother could ever face in this life as she buries her two sons. Now, in that ancient culture, it was not a good thing to outlive your husband. Widows were looked down upon, mistreated, considered a drag on the economy. Back then, as a woman, your greatest source of capital was not your education, it was your family. It was your husband and your sons. So Naomi here, she's in a tough spot. She's lost her husband. Now she's lost her sons. She's too old to remarry. No hope, no future, no one to turn to. So what does she do? She decides to head back home to Israel to live out her days as a beggar. When she gets back to her hometown in Bethlehem, people say, hey, isn't that Naomi? And here's how she responds. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. It's kind of a play on on her name. In Hebrew, the word Naomi, it means sweet. She went away sweet, full. She comes back bitter, empty, Mara. Naomi looks at her life, and what has she been dealt? Famine, death, sorrow, poverty, more than she can handle. Isn't that a depressing story? Like, what a great way to celebrate moms. Dunnigan, let's close in prayer. (laughs) Well, that's not the end. Before Naomi heads back to Bethlehem, there's a scene in which she's talking with her two daughters-in-law, also widows. And she says, look, you need to stay here with your people, the Moabites. Don't go with me back to Israel. You need to stay here and start a new life and find new, new husbands. You're still young enough. There's still hope for you. And so here's what happens. Then they, the daughters-in-law, lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And just to clarify, that's not a typo by the you know, production team. Her name is not supposed to be Oprah, all right? It's Orpah. And she gives her mother-in-law a kiss goodbye. But Ruth... Ruth clung to Naomi. Verse 15, and Naomi said to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her. Do the same thing your sister-in-law does. And then comes one of these great moments in Scripture, one of these thin places. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay And your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And here Ruth, a widow herself, is willing to give up her extended family, her country, her home, her people, her search for a new husband. 
One writer put it like this, in a world where life depended on men, Ruth committed herself to an old woman. There is no more radical decision in all of Israel. As we watch this story unfold, this connection between a mom and her daughter-in-law, given more than they could ever handle, what we find in the midst of this story is that God has been there all along. God is at work in their lives, under the surface. He is redeeming their struggles, redeeming their suffering in two ways. First, God is redeeming their story as they suffer together. Something happens when we share in our sufferings, when we suffer with one another, a kind of healing that does not happen when all we do is share in our our victories and our triumphs. God somehow works through us to bring healing and comfort and courage to one another as we suffer together. By the way, think about the cost for Ruth to do that. To say those words, where you go, I will go. When Ruth crosses that border from Moab into Israel, now she's not just a widow, now she's a foreigner. She's an outsider. In fact, throughout the story, if you read through the the book of Ruth, she's called Ruth the Moabite. Over and over, you could just read through and highlight every time it says Ruth the Moabite. It's as if the writer doesn't want you to forget, hey, she's a Moabite. And, and, And that the descendants of the Moabites were from a place called Sodom, And they were a people who had historically oppressed the Israelites. So this is powder keg, ethnic hatred, tension kind of stuff. I mean, think about this. Immigrants normally move into a new land with hopes for a better future and a better life. Ruth immigrates not because she's looking for a better life, but knowing full well she's walking into a worse one. That every day in Israel she'll be faced with racism and hatred, and, and, and possibly even violence. So the cost of those words, where you go, I will go. I'm willing to face all of that in order to join you in your suffering, Naomi. You see, when tragedy strikes, and I'm not that old, but I've been around long enough to know that eventually it strikes for everyone, the time comes when we all need a Ruth. We all need a fellow sufferer because we cannot handle it alone. You ever had someone love you in that way? A friend who entered into the suffering with you like they didn't try to fix it or explain it or hey I've got this great book on the shelf I want you to read and then we'll talk about it or they joined you in the suffering sometimes it's the bond between a child and a parent and if that's something that you've been blessed with be grateful today something happens when we journey through suffering together God God's comfort and his rescue comes to us in ways that we cannot experience on our own You know, you look around this sanctuary and every one of us at some point in our lives, if we haven't already, it it will happen someday, we will be struggling and suffering and weighed down by more than we can handle. That's just life in a fallen, sin-stained world. And it needs to be said, because one of the great illusions that we live under, especially in this part of the world, and and this is the work of the enemy, is is that I'm the only one who's really carrying too much to handle right now. Nobody else in this room would understand the kind of pressure or the kind of suffering or the kind of struggles that I'm carrying right now. Nobody else would get it because I've seen that person's Instagram stories and I got that family's Christmas card and I see how, you know, that cup, that family, they get here and they're always here on time and their kids are always dressed in the perfectly smocked outfits and, and there's never any peanut butter in the hair. Obviously, they're not dealing with more than they can handle. Not true, not true, not true. There's a church that I went to in college, and a story about this woman who would drive past that church every day. 
And on Sunday morning, she would often drive by and she would see all these people outside on the front lawn of the church just talking and laughing and sharing and, and looking good in their Sunday best. Eventually, she became a part of that church, but she said for years she would drive past and she just would see everyone out on the front lawn chatting. And here was her thought. She thought, I could never fit in there. Like, they all look like they're at a giant cocktail party for rich people, right? To which some of you are wondering, do they do that here? I mean, I've seen the muffins and the coffee, but where's the mimosa bar? Now, we have a creative connection team, not that creative, okay? But that's not who we are. And I know that on this morning, we've got the giant mom balloons and the best lemonade stand ever. And, but, but this is a place, everyone in this church, every family is fighting a battle. Everyone has wounds. Every single person in this church at one point or another has had to face more than they can handle. And when we're willing to open up about that and suffer together, we experience a kind of comfort and courage that we could never experience if we're just going at it alone. We suffer together. But then the second part of this, and this is really the second act of the book of Ruth, is God's hidden hope in hard places. God's hidden hope in hard places. As the story unfolds, Naomi and Ruth, they, they head back to Bethlehem, and they're living in poverty. It was a custom in that day that farmers would leave some of the grain that they were harvesting out on the fields for the poor. And one day Ruth goes out to gather leftover grain in a field, and the owner of that field, a guy by the name of Boaz, somehow he overhears her story. And he's amazed that Ruth was willing to take on this dead-end life out of loyalty and love for her mother-in-law. And so he goes out to Ruth, and here's what he says. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, and just so, that's not creepy, that's an expression of, of kindness. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Question, why would he have to tell his men not to lay a hand on Ruth? And who is she? She's a despised Moabite, a foreigner with no husband, no one to protect her, no laws to protect her. Boaz says you are safe here. Nobody's going to harm you here. Ruth is just blindsided by this. She's so moved. We're told that she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? By the way, Boaz, Boaz is a picture of what God's people, of what the church ought to be about. We stand up for the vulnerable, for the foreigner, for the outsider, for the widow, we are called to love and defect and, and, and defend and lift up and protect those who cannot protect themselves. So Ruth goes back to Naomi and she shares this incredible news about this kind man, Boaz, who's treated her with such compassion. And as she's telling the story, kind of recapping the day, it's, it's sort of funny. Naomi the mother-in-law gets all excited because she's starting to read between the lines that there might be the slightest level of romantic interest coming from this man named Boaz. So Naomi starts giving Ruth some dating advice. Anybody ever gotten dating advice from mom? <laughs> right? One time in seventh grade for me, totally backfired. That's for another sermon. So Naomi says to Ruth, look, we got to clean you up. We're going to put on some nice perfume, your best dress, 
And then tonight, I want you to sneak into Boaz. He'll be sleeping where he works on the threshing floor because it's the harvest time and you don't really stop working. You just sleep whenever you can. And here's what Naomi says, chapter three, verse four. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Now, what is up with that? This is getting like PG-13 here, Bible story. And what's the deal with the uncovered feet? Did Boaz have like really nice toes or something? I don't know. There's not much in the way of historical commentary about the uncovered feet. Most likely, though, this was not something inappropriate or sketchy. It was basically a way to let a man know that you were interested. And so Ruth does exactly as she's told. She sneaks in. She wakes up Boaz, uncovers his feet. And there's this little moment in the text. Ruth says to Boaz, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, your coat. Spread your coat over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, coats in the Old Testament, these are really symbolic things. Think about Joseph and his coat of many colors. Ruth says, would you share your coat with me? Would you cover over me? Would you share your life with me? Ruth, in a way, is proposing And here's the thing, if they get married, then not only Ruth, but her mother-in-law, Naomi, will be provided for as well, because it turns out Boaz is a distant relative of Naomi's family, and as a guardian redeemer, he has the right to buy back, to redeem her family's lost land. And that's exactly what happens. Ruth and Boaz get married, then they have a child. Now Naomi has a family again. She becomes like a second mother to that child. There is hidden hope in every single life, even in the darkest places. You know, it's an odd thing about the book of Ruth. I mean, it's kind of, it it, it comes to us in between all of these stories and books of the Old Testament where you have miraculous displays of God's power, a burning bush, God parting the seas, not in Ruth. No visions, no dreams, nothing that jumps off the page as supernatural or extraordinary. The book of Ruth announces that even in the darkest times when we have been crushed by more than we could ever handle on our own, God is still at work and he never wastes our suffering. He never wastes a wound. I mean, of all places, Ruth finds herself on Boaz Field, the only person who can redeem her story. Naomi says, I'm empty. I got nothing. Call me Mara. But that's not true. She she doesn't have to be Mara because she has Ruth, a fellow sufferer. God's rescue comes through the most unexpected person in the story. Think about this. A foreigner, a widow, a courageous, bold, self-assertive woman who proposes to a man. And see, part of the backdrop to this story is that God is forming a new community, a new people who will change the world for women. In this community, women will have a new dignity, a new purpose that that they've never had before in history. So I want to show you one more moment from the end of this story. Chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In the quiet providence of God... A family is being formed, and it turns out that Ruth, a Gentile, a foreigner, a one-time widow, will be the great-grandmother of King David, the greatest king Israel has ever had. But then it doesn't end with David. 
Because one day, years later, years later, another child, another king would be born in Bethlehem, in the line of Ruth, in the line of David. Jesus comes to us through Ruth. Think about this. Ruth looked at Naomi, her mother-in-law, and said, I'm going to give my life away so that she can live. I'm going to take on poverty on myself. I will become poor so that through my poverty she might become rich. Ruth left her father's house, her own country. She became an outsider. Ruth became a suffering servant. Reminds you of anyone? The son who left his father's kingdom, his father's country, he left the riches of heaven to take on poverty, to be rejected and despised and to suffer for us. Jesus emptied himself so that we might be filled in him. And it makes you kind of wonder if Jesus, when he was learning about his family, when mom was telling him, hey, you remember so-and-so? You remember the story about this person and this generation all those times back? You wonder if he knew that there was a courageous Moabite widow in his family named Ruth. There's a scene at the very end of Jesus' life as he's hanging on the cross. And this is in John's gospel where he looks down and he sees his widowed mom. He sees Mary. And he says to his friend John, he says, behold, your mother, take care of her. And this little movement that Jesus launched, one of the things that they were known for right out of the gate was how they took care of widows. This was so important that the first major debate and conflict in the early church was about what? Acts chapter 6. How are we going to take care of the widows? Some of the strongest, boldest leaders in the early church were widows who at one time had no voice, no authority in the eyes of their culture, like they were just getting in the way. Beyond hope, not with Jesus, not with the God of Naomi and Ruth. So, God won't give you more than you can handle? I don't know about that. But the promise of this story, of God's story, the promise of Ruth And Naomi, the promise of the cross is that God will never give you a struggle he cannot transform. God will never give you suffering he cannot redeem. And he'll never let you have a wound that he cannot heal. As he shapes you more and more into the woman and the man that he has created you to be. And so Jesus, we pray that you would continue to do that work in us now. And some of us, God, today, we need to know We need to know that you never waste a wound. And I pray that you would come to us, that your comfort might come to us even through this time of worship. And then we pray as well that you might send a Ruth into our lives, one who suffers with us, that we might almost find ourselves becoming a fellowship of the sufferers. And that in that we could find that there is hope and there is redemption and there is rescue Because Jesus, you conquered death, sin, suffering, and you'll use it all to bring redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.